Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Welcome, everybody, to today's episode of Dead Planet Society. I am your host, as always, Adam Proctor. And today, the Anti-Essentialism Series Part 2 marches onward. Last week, we had a really fascinating discussion with Joanna West about the anti-essentialist future of biomedical sciences and anthropology and the way that we discuss and analyze and assess human biodiversity. And today, we're going to be talking about the Economic Origins of Mass Incarceration. That is also the title of the piece. I've got one of the co-authors on that's written by John Clegg and Adoner Usmani. And Adoner is joining us today to talk about this. Adoner is an assistant professor of sociology and social studies at Harvard University. Adoner, thanks for coming back on the show. Thanks, Adam. Thank you for inviting me. So for long-term, long-time DPS listeners, uh, they will know that I had you on the show about a year ago, a year and a half ago, and we talked about a similar theme. This has been the topic of your academic research for a very long time. This piece that just recently came out in Catalyst Journal uh, is, is really an empirical validation of a lot of the claims and theses that you laid out for us in uh, our previous episode. For those of you, for those of the listeners out there who missed that show, uh, give us a little scoop of your research agenda, Un- unpacking and untangling and revealing the economic origins of mass incarceration uh, from a, from an anti essentialist perspective has been the kind of uh, part and parcel of your research agenda all along. So, give us a kind of elevator speech as to why you study that and why you find it so important. Sure. As I as I remember our conversation last time, it was mainly uh, sort of negative argument that I was making, which is that the standard story that we tell about mass incarceration is inadequate in some really key respects. And this this is where this paper begins, which is with a description of the various ways in which the standard story has led us astray. But the project of this paper and then the project of the work that I'm pursuing over the next few years, hopefully, is to try and construct also a positive account of where mass incarceration came from. In other words, we know that the standard story is wrong, but what should replace it? And we start to do this. I mean, that really is the agenda of this piece. But I think there is more work definitely to be done to substantiate the case that we make in the piece. Um, Maybe a helpful place to start would be with reviewing the criticism that we make of the standard story. Yeah, let's do that, because you're you're basically uh, your starting point here is that the standard story that has emerged in the social scientific literature and also has kind of then been disseminated into the political movements, into the political consciousness of most active progressive and leftist, uh, you know, people in not only in North America, but across the world. Uh, It's it's come from, from this thesis of the new Jim Crow. And the New Jim Crow is is a thesis, a book that was written by Michelle Alexander, former public defender, now an academic, um, who and that, and that is that was an incredibly powerful thing. I mean, it's it's for those who did not who were not active on the left during that time. That was about twenty eleven. Is that right? Yeah, I believe. Yeah. It's the 10th anniversary, so maybe two thousand ten. But yeah, exactly around. Yeah, that. I'm sure the articles that sort of um, that you know <clears throat> that came before the book. We're, we're out much earlier than that. But uh, that was 
a sea change on the left. And those of you who were on the left and active in any activist setting will know that that book was mandatory reading for everyone. And it really informed the way that people addressed uh, racial discrimination, uh, mass incarceration, and the kind of racialized dimensions of society at large. Keep in mind, this was around the time that there was a campaign to save the life of Troy Davis, a man in Georgia who was innocent by all accounts, who was then put to death. We were unable to save his life. And so these kinds of issues were very hot on the progressive and left consciousness. So tell us about this standard story and why it had so much power in that moment. And it it continues to really, uh, really capture the way that we frame these questions in in a very broad way. Absolutely. The second question that you ask, right, uh, which is about why it has so much power is something that maybe we can return to because I think that's a that's a pretty difficult question to answer. But the first question, which is just what is the standard story is much more straightforward. The standard story, as I would summarize it, is an account of where mass incarceration came from that emphasizes a political reaction launched primarily by the Republican strategy, uh, Republican Party and primarily by its sort of southern wing, let's say, which had the intention of recapturing the South from or capturing the South from the Democratic Party by winning away working class white voters. And the way that these strategists thought to do that was by emphasizing the law, emphasizing law and order issues, which the story goes, were kind of coded ways of talking about what was happening more generally to the racial order at the time, that the racial order had been coming under challenge by the great, great migration and by the civil rights movement in particular. And the story goes that these strategists saw in that, in those changes, an opportunity to sell to working class white people, your world is changing and it's becoming more disorderly. And through that, the argument goes, they were able to win working class white voters over to the Republican Party from the Democratic Party. And that process of winning these people over, using this rhetoric of law and order, became the sorts of policies that led the United States to become the greatest jailer in, the, in world history, basically. The argument is, obviously, obviously, you know, there needs to be an account in the standard story of how it is that you could simply criminalize ordinary behavior to the extent that you would increase the incarceration rate by five, six, seven, eight fold. And the argument basically is that this took the form of the war on drugs. What happened was that we criminalized behavior that was more or less done in equal amounts across different communities, across different places in the United States, but we criminalized it in certain communities. And those people ended up in American prisons, leading us to have an incarceration rate of seven, 800 per 100,000 by the end of the 90s, the, the beginning of the 2000s. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we have a lot. We've got a lot there to unpack. It's a really great place to start for the remainder of this hour-long chat, this long-form chat we're going to have here, uh, because there's there's a, a mixture of truth and falsity in that standard story. Isn't Absolutely. There? Now, on the one hand, it's really critical to to you know to highlight and underline the fact that you know the this the so-called Southern strategy and other kind of more racialized forms of control and social um, and, and oppression. Are, are very much present and are undeniable and empirically valid. There are other other aspects in there that are that are far, let's say they undersell the complexity 
of sort of social reality in really dangerous ways, in ways that prevent us not only from seeing how we got to where we are today, but also enabling us to get out of this problem, right? So let's begin by unpacking this. You and your co-author, John Clegg, do not dispute in any way, say, for example, the Southern strategy. So talk to us about what are the aspects in that standard story that are historically and empirically valid? Yeah, I think that's a really helpful distinction to make, Adam, which is that I think the point is not at all to say that this thing, the Southern strategy, didn't exist. The point is that it is being used to explain something that it cannot explain, namely the rise in the population behind bars in the United States. So the point is not at all that there weren't these strategists who, who were trying to do this. But the point is that this does not add up to a story of the origins of mass incarceration in the United States. And the place to begin to understand why that's the case is from the very simple observation that most American prisoners are not in prisons for drug offenses. I mean, the estimates vary. The upper bound is around 20%. These are people who are in prison for any kind of drug-related crime. But the kind of fixture of the standard story, the, the figure that's at the center of the standard story is the nonviolent drug offender. And the critical claim here, the reason that they're the reason that it's critical in the standard story that they be this sort of non-violent, inoffensive drug offender is because the idea is that what happened in the United States is that we criminalized ordinary behavior that really didn't change. Behavior didn't really change. What changed was the state's desire to criminalize behavior. But actually, the non-violent drug offender is a really, really even much smaller proportion of people behind bars in American jails and prisons. The estimates are around four to five percent, depending exactly on how you define a low level drug offender. So the first problem is a simple compositional problem, which is that these are not the people that we sent to prison in the United States over this period. I think that's important also to highlight in terms of the activist circles as well. I mean, it, it may be, you know, it may be unfair. We may be uncharitable to some of the younger uh, more perhaps naive activists, sort of, you know, still green, still learning the, the flow. But the, a lot of the mottos and slogans and things that you find on placards and marches and rallies and such are that, you know, would, would lead one to believe that most of the people in prison are, are totally harmless and, and don't deserve to be there. And they just had a bag of weed on them or whatever. And they were unfairly targeted because of their racial identity or what have you. But again, that's a, that's a story. That's a narrative that's that's bound up with with truth and falsity, falsehood. Um, is it, the, it? It's clearly not the case that the people in prison are not, uh, in some way, dangerous to society. Uh, that seems to be the claim made on the left in a lot of ways. And, and your right. data that you reveal here is that actually it is the case that uh, there was massive, massive spikes in violent crime. Uh, over the over the course of a couple of decades, and it doesn't do the left any favors to try to deny that because the law and order, crime and punishment folks on the right and the left, uh, center left, I should say, of the spectrum, uh, will always um, be able to sort of clap back <laughs> with those statistics. And yet, should it be any surprise that when you deprive populations of their basic human dignity and decency? through these economic transformations that we underwent in those decades, should we be surprised that they are, let's say, underdeveloped in ways that we would like to, to see our society and civilization uh, sort of 
the highest visions and ideals of, of where we like to see people in our society. So let's let's break that down a little bit because right. I think it can be both at the same time. It can be both the case that we are subjecting people to inhumane conditions, which then at you know turn them into violent, predatorial human beings that that victimize other people. Um, so there's a lot there to, to break right. down. Let's, right. Let's Absolutely. talk about that spike in violent crime that right. happened exactly. in those decades. So- so exactly as you were saying, I mean, if this is not a story about the criminalization of behavior that was unchanging and inoffensive behavior, this is a story about behavior that was changing. Most of the people in American prisons are in prison for violent or property offenses. And these are offenses that really trouble people, white and black, in the United States. And we show some evidence in the piece of rising public concern about crime and violence. It was pervasive across white communities, across black communities, it became a real political problem that politicians had to respond to and that various officials in the American criminal justice system had to respond to. The point, of course, and this is a point that I thought you made very well, the point, of course, is that even though the public grew in, incredibly concerned, and even though I think in any objective say, we, objective sense, we would say this is a problem that a society has to respond to. This is a social crisis of a significant kind that, is, that the state can't just ignore. Even though that's the case, obviously, we are not arguing that the necessary and indeed merited response to this crisis was the response that we saw. Not at all. The point that crime increased is not the point. We're not making the point that the state's response was justified in any way. That's a, that's a normative claim that's totally different from the argument that we're making. What we're saying is that there was a generalized social crisis in the United States that emerged in the 1960s, 1970s, as a consequence of all the things that you were arguing, which were these economic transformations that were affecting American cities in particular. And I think we can come back to that to explain that story in a little bit more detail. But the point is, states can respond to these sorts of crises in many, many different ways. And the way in which a lot of the left, a lot of the liberal left at the time was arguing the state to resp- uh, the state should have responded is with massive social policy investments in these communities. And that didn't transpire. And in many ways, that is really the heart of the story that we're telling, which is what we need to understand when we're trying to understand the overdevelopment of America's penal apparatus is the underdevelopment of America's social policy response to the generalized social crisis of the 60s and 70s. Exactly. Spot on. Let's get to this, this spike in crime rates because this is really something we need to we need to smash. And I've faced this not only in activist circles, I've faced this in socialist organizations, I've faced this in graduate seminars for fuck's sake. You certainly see this in undergraduate courses full of well-intentioned, you know, woke 19, 20-year-olds who really want to change the world and are really seriously affected and impacted by the injustice that they see and perceive around them. Uh, and yet they're getting it wrong in many yeah. respects. And that's the problem. You know, uh, we're all on the same team. We all want to build the same world, but we have to assess it and analyze it correctly in order to move forward in a productive way. So as you, you've got some several, you have several figures with your co-author, John Clegg, here in this piece showing that the homicide rate doubled, the property crime rate trebled, and the violent crime rate roughly quintupled in the decades uh, between 1960 and 1990. That is a massive spike in horrific crime. And let's be clear about this. I've got a lot of normie my, – my family is just you know fairly right-wing normies, just good old down south mountain folks 
from Virginia and I've got some I have some people who work in the criminal justice system in my in my you know family and the stories that you hear is that well you know people are out there victimizing people it's a dangerous world and over the over Thanksgiving dinner you know I'll I'll, I'll hear stories of of this horrific you know gang violence and crime and victimization and 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 this is the narrative that you get certainly on the far right for anybody who's spent any time watching Fox News this mm-hmm. is the narrative that you get from Hillary Clinton the super predators <laughs> right you know I may mm-hmm. not be David Duke, but you know, <laughs> I talk about violent crime in the same way. Anyway, uh, and yet, right, being good dialecticians, and yet there is a measure of truth to this horrific spike in crime rates. So let's talk about that spike first, and then we'll talk about perhaps why it, it might have happened. Yeah, so let's just describe what happened. And I think the the figures that you cite are are, are roughly a good description of what happened. Obviously, there is often, as you were saying, skepticism of these figures. And you hear skepticism of these figures quite a bit, as you were saying, in graduate seminars or in academic conferences or whatever else, that, you know, perhaps this doesn't actually measure a change in behavior, but it simply measures a change in the state's ability to detect crime, right? This is a common narrative that the state you know, more police were being put on the streets and the state's ability to monitor crime was increasing over the 60s and 70s. So maybe what we're observing is just an artifact of the fact that the state was improving its ability to record crime. There's a lot to say about that argument. The best way to suggest the best way to show that actually something was changing is to rely on those statistics that we know aren't corrupted by that problem. And those statistics are mortality statistics, statistics, which measure the homicide rate. And we show those in this piece as well. And what those suggest is that actually the rise in violence was real. The rise in violence, the the amount of violence in the United States increased dramatically. At the very least, it doubled between the 1960s and the 1970s. And then it stayed at historically high rates. And not just historically high rates, but rates that are high by comparison with any other developed country. The United States the homicide rate in the United States is an order of magnitude higher than the homicide rate in other developed countries. And that was true in the 70s and 80s. And it's and it stayed at those very, very high levels till the basically the mid 1990s, around the time that this term super predator is coined. So it is fair to have some concerns about statistics and around the edges. There may be some things that we would adjust in our estimate of these trends based on the, the criticisms, um, based on this worry that you know, you can't exactly take these statistics at face value. But there are no serious criminologists who dispute the idea that serious crime rose extremely dramatically and to very, very high levels um, over this period. So descriptively, the story is very, very straightforward. Descriptively, something really dramatic changed in the United States. And then the next question, as you were suggesting, is why? Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, wrapping our heads around that, you know, it... It really challenges the the moralistic way of viewing social phenomenon that I think is on the way out on the, on the American left anyway. I think it is. I really do think the Bernie Sanders wave has really cleansed our our the the worst our, our worst ways of thinking about social reality and the complexity thereof. So I, I want to say that you know I think I think we're we're seeing some improvements here in the way that people are imagining this. But the moralism that I'm talking about is such that, well, we want to defend these people. We want to change the world. We see them as victims. We see criminals, the incarcerated, as oppressed, and therefore, 
they must actually just be really good people, right? And and the people who are saying that they're very actually very bad um, are 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 just mistaken, and it, it becomes this kind of uh, Manichaean culture war wherein only only one side can be correct, and there can mm-hmm. be no no there's no uh, allowance for any complexity. Yeah, about. can I just make a point there that I think is really important that yep. you're that Please you're hitting me. on, which is that what is what is interesting to me is that both sides, what you're calling the left and the far right, both sides share this view that if somebody commits a crime, they are in effect evil, morally responsible for that crime. Both sides share that view, and the response of the left to the observation that there was crime is to say, no, that can't be right because we know these people aren't bad. So, in fact, there was no crime. And what, one of the things that we want to argue in this essay is that that position that both the far left and the far right share is completely fallacious. There is no reason to believe that if somebody commits a crime, they are therefore morally responsible in some extremely punitive, retributive way for that crime. In fact, what we are arguing, as you said, is that crime is an index of oppression. And people commit crime under conditions of deprivation and oppression. And as a consequence, acknowledging the reality of crime is simply equivalent to acknowledging that people are massively oppressed. And in the United States in the 50s and 60s, that the, the degree and intensity of that oppression concentrated and, and changed in ways that led to an increase in crime. But by no means does that sanction the verdict that they were evil. And certainly by no means does that sanction the verdict that they deserved punitive response from the state, right? And, and and it's that similarity in the far left and far right position that I think is something that one of the main objectives of this essay was to suggest that 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 they both share this this position that's really quite silly from a normative perspective. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So let's get to let's 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 get back to the history and talk about what what was happening in that, yeah, in, that so in, the, in those decades. But what was what was happening? That caused, I don't say caused, that led to, that produced the conditions wherein violent criminals were far more likely to exist in this time period and in this country than any, perhaps anywhere else. Um, it, it's a very, um, it's it's an it's, it's an, and this is a tongue twister. It's an historical and social anomaly, in in so many respects that we have now just sort of taken for granted as just a just a status quo. Um, yeah. Of course, it's on the decline. Violent crime is on the decline, but there's no reason to believe that that will always be the case. So we need to get our arguments about this correct. Should there be another spike in violent crime that we can uh, address it effectively from a leftward uh, direction? Yeah. So what 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 happened in the 1960s? <laughs> this shouldn't shock anybody, but we should break this down in detail. Right. So the story that we tell about the 1960s and 1970s is a story of the transformation of America's political economy and its urban centers in particular. And it's a story that I think, as you're saying, will be familiar to most people. It's a story of the transformation of the labor market, first and foremost. I mean, what happened starting in the 1960s already, and particularly in cities both north and south, is that good jobs for low-skilled male employees, both black and white, started to disappear. They started to both leave cities and they started to leave the economy in the sense that technological change meant that they were no longer as necessary and they started to leave the United States eventually, right? So we see and we show in this article that there already the kind of low 
skill labor market is is starting to deteriorate in some very pronounced ways already by the 1960s. The other thing that is changing that is, is really important is that wealth and assets are leaving American cities. They're leaving American cities in the form of white people who are moving to suburbs and in the form of middle class people who are moving to suburbs. And obviously there's a strong correlation between white and middle class, but black middle class people also leave the cities. And so what happens in these cities is that the tax base starts to collapse. And as the tax base starts to collapse, the social infrastructure starts to collapse. And this is at the same time as jobs are leaving. So you you, you see these uh, pockets of extreme concentrated poverty emerge, where as sociologist after sociologist has argued, violent crime starts to rise, property crime starts to rise in this context of concentrated poverty and in spatial uh, and social isolation. Um, basically, all of the things that hold communities together are starting to wither under the pressure of both the collapse in tax revenues and the collapse of employment. Um, and, and that really, I think, is the heart of what is happening in American cities in this period. There are some other things, you know, so criminologists have emphasized the baby boom, which happens post-World War II, meaning that there are larger numbers of young people in the labor market and larger numbers of young people in the population in general and young people commit more crime. So we see an increase in crime. And we don't argue that those things are unimportant exactly. You know, quantitatively, they contribute something. But really, the heart of the story, in our view, is the way in which the transformation of the American economy intersects with certain institutional facts about the United States, specifically the fact that you can basically jump to the suburbs and flee the flee taxation by the state. Um, flee taxation by the city in particular, that then produces these communities of extreme oppression and isolation in which crime starts to increase. And I want to talk about this social policy, because this is oftentimes presented as a sort of trump card on on some sectors of the left. They're, they're, they're pushing back on this economically driven narrative. And, and you know, as, as you well know, and you've been You've been caught up in this as much as I have in, in a variety of ways, although you are a very serious and respectable academic and I'm just a podcast host layabout. But, <laughs> but, uh, but uh, so it, it impacts us differently and we engage differently. And sometimes I, I get I've, I've gotten far more caught up in this than I would have liked in, in the past. But in these like really, really, really pointed debates about race versus class. And it's just so silly and it's ridiculous and it obfuscates far more than it than it illuminates. And, and that's the major theme of this of, of part two of this anti-essentialism series that I'm running is to try to really to, to, to dig in a little bit deeper to get beyond these these absurd rifts that, as I, as I mentioned, obfuscate more than they illuminate. But but one of the ways that people are now pushing back from one side of of that of those battle lines is that, well, of course, there are economic origins to racial outcomes in society. However, uh, you have to look at these social policies, the way that these social policies drove these outcomes that, that were that sort of sparked, that were sparked and, and lit, stood side by side and alongside economic origin. So a lot of the people, for example, that are pushing back against uh, some of this really incredible, you know, social scientific literature that you yourself are a part of, they're pointing to various social policies that, a, that they say actually hold up this kind of um, more basic kind of racial oppression narrative that was pushed by, say, the new Jim Crow thesis. But doesn't that really kind of 
doesn't that really kind of mystify the sources of social policy? And this mm-hmm. is outside the scope of your article, so I apologize. I'm mm-hmm. asking you to sort of riff on this a little bit. Yeah. But we as good we, we as good grounded materialists and perhaps even Marxists among us understand social policy to, to be driven by the ruling class, ruling class being very much tied to an economic and social elite, right? So that I, I don't see how this sort of rebuttal that, aha, yes, sure, it is economic, but there are social policies that come down from the federal level, the state level, the local level that show that it's actually still racial animosity that's driving this thing. Right. But social right. policy is the result of class forces, it's not just sort of um, a product of people's racial imagination, uh, regardless of whether or not that racial imagination was correct. Now, I've said enough. What, what do you make of that? Yeah, no, I think I, I think you raise some very important points there. The way that I would put this, and I think we say this towards the end of the article, is that there's a lot of focus in this general literature on the incentives that, let's say, white America or white political elites more narrowly had to oppress black people. In other words, what you were referring to as kind of racial animus, this desire to put black people in their place. But that is limited in one very profound way analytically, which is that it leaves entirely unexplored the ability of white people to do this to African-Americans. And the point here is, I mean, I think we riff on this Stokely Carmichael quote, which we um, have at the end, which is, you know, something like, if the white man wants to lynch me, that's his problem. But if the white man has the ability, has the capacity to lynch me, then it becomes my problem. And that is very much how I think we see the evolution of 20th century America, which is in order to understand how the racial order is transforming, there's too much attention so far in in the kind of scholarship that you and I are familiar with on the incentives that white people had to do X and Y to black people. What we really need to understand are the capacities and how these capacities shifted that allowed white people to do what they did to black people. And, you know, that allows you to understand variation in the racial order in ways that are much more productive. So the civil rights movement becomes an important moment in which, despite the fact that there's massive racial animus in the South, there are actually massive inroads made against the American racial order because of the way in which the political economy of the United States is changing. And that's sort of the the in general, without speaking about any specific work of scholarship, that's in general the way that I would say the literature has gone awry, which is in emphasizing incentives to dominate rather than capacities to dominate and the balance of capacities. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in to today's episode. This is the part of the program where I ask you to become one of the three to four hundred some odd patrons of DPS Media and subscribe today for access to bonus episodes that are coming out on a weekly basis. I think that DPS fills a very important spot. We have a very important niche on the left, the socialist left, the progressive left. Where else are you going to find, under one umbrella, in one spot, long-form serious interviews with progressives of the likes of Eric Levitz? We're going to be having on Nomiki Konst in a couple of weeks' time to talk about the fuckeration going on in the DNC right now with respect to Bernie Sanders in the primary race. We're going to be talking to serious socialists like legend himself, Leo Panich, about the challenges of the democratic socialist movement as it exists. 
where else do you find the bringing together of serious socialist and Marxist even politics, theory, academic work, and the progressive, uh, rooted, grounded experience of the more pragmatic, journalistic types of the likes of Dan Marins, Eric Levitz, and so on. Nowhere else. Nowhere else. Might not be as funny as Chapo. Certainly don't have the impressions, the impersonations of Michael Brooks. But DPS is playing a pivotal role in this moment, this moment of democratic socialist upsurge. And we cannot do this without your support. So I urge you, if you listen to DPS with any regularity on a weekly basis, on a monthly basis, if you have learned anything from myself and my amazing guests at all, head over to www.patreon.com slash deadpundits and become a patron today. Not only will you get the warm and fuzzies of knowing that you are supporting this new left agenda as it is emerging, but you will get access to our weekly B-sides, which feature in-depth interviews and monologues from yours truly. As I said, we're in an incredible moment of growth and upsurge in this left progressive democratic socialist wave, and I'm going to be taking the opportunity to get on bigger and bigger guests with larger and larger platforms, and it is going to be important for principled socialists to fill this vacuum on the media sphere, even the progressive media sphere. There are a lot of really great progressive outlets out there. You think about the Young Turks, you think about Kyle Kalinske, you think about Majority Report, you think about left-wing programs such as Michael Brooks, who has a lot of, you know, who's gained a lot of ground, a lot of exposure. You think about Rising with Crystal Ball. I talk about those types of people nonstop. But it's also really important that in the in the midst of this wave, this surge in left progressive commentary, that we have explicitly socialist outlets filling that void as well. And that's where I think podcasts like DPS have a vital role to play. And you, the listener, are the way that we go about expanding our operations and being sure that we have a voice in this continued surge. So head over to www.patreon.com slash deadpundits and subscribe at a level at which you are comfortable. And you will get access to those weekly B-sides and some other goodies that I give my patrons uh, from time to time. All right, enough out of me. I hope that you all are enjoying this interview with Idana Usmani immensely. I certainly enjoyed conducting it. It was incredibly informative. The Anti-Essentialism Series Part 2 marches onward. Yeah, because, I mean, there are a lot of questions there that, that aren't, aren't answered by the incentives. Uh, one being, you, you mentioned the fact that a lot of people fled, a lot of middle and upper class people fled cities during these decades that we're talking about here, uh, which, uh, you know, eventually precipitated very large spikes in violent crime. But, you know, if so if you had the capacities to leave these growing, you know, these increasingly awful urban centers, you would, regardless yeah. of your skin color, regardless of any other social measure, a social aggregate measure, right? It's the question of who had the capacities and who didn't, and then why. Yeah, uh, and then and then the other. So so one point is that the capacities are not they the capacities are not sufficient to produce the outcome. Sorry, the incentives are not sufficient to produce the outcomes that we see. The incent, in other words, you need not more than just incentives to to do. But the other the other thing that I would say is that sometimes even incentives aren't necessary. And by that specifically, I mean, racial animus isn't necessary, or at least racial animus of the kind of caricatured kind, um, racial animus of, of say, like somebody 
somebody's primary motivation is to defend white supremacy. You, you, you don't need that kind of racial animus to see the massive black-white inequalities that emerge. And this has been shown and argued by social scientists as well. In fact, there are, in, in many ways, people without that kind of racial animus are behaving in the same way that people with that racial animus are behaving. And that, I mean, in reference to the fact that you see very similar patterns of segregation emerge in liberal parts of the United States and more conservative racist parts of the United States. You know, I mean, in, in many ways, like uh, the Route 128 area in Massachusetts looks like a white supremacist paradise in some ways, precisely because suburbs have the capacity to keep out poor black people. And they do it basically to defend their their the right to spend their own money on themselves. And that is in many ways, that to me suggests that this is so much more than a story of racial animus trying to defend. Uh, this is so much more than a story of racial animus. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I mean, yeah. Stu- studying what what some people actually, uh, Kamala Harris's father uh, used to call studying the the black urban ghetto. Uh, the political economy of the black urban ghetto is incredibly fascinating here where it shows that even within those networks, those political economic networks, you know, obviously class power still reigns supreme in terms of how the flows of goods and services and even segregation uh, was played out. Right. And it's, 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 it's fascinating. I mean, people like Michael Fortner, you mentioned James Foreman in the piece have also indicated that this, this, this punitive drive also existed in, inside of uh Various communities of color, and I'm sure you can yeah, even yeah. you can extrapolate that now into into other ethnic uh, you know uh, ethnically uh, dense communities as well in the United States as we continue to diversify from a you know a sort of you know biracial nation into a far more um, complex one. Um, totally. So just to put a kind of ribbon on the issue that you raise, which is is to say that there is no doubt that racial animus was in operation and it had some it had causal effects. But the, the point that I think you and I are both making is that there are limits to what it can explain. And narratives focused entirely on racial animus are going to miss a lot of what is happening. Yeah. Yeah. We spend a lot of time and a lot of breath and, and a lot, for a lot, all the right reasons trying to demonstrate that racism is real. And it sucks that we have to, that we live in a world where we have to do that so much. But it's also the case that our narratives and our explanation of what racism looks like, where it came from, and what to do about it has to be we have to we have to come correct with that as well. If we want to stave off off the worst denialism that comes from sectors of the right, you know that we're we're living in Trump's America right now. Nobody has to. I don't have to give examples of how you know how there there are ridiculous and absurdist denials of of racially oppressive outcomes and and racially oppressive attitudes. Uh, but we're so hell bent on demonstrating the the truth, the existence, the factuality of of racism that that we we flatten and and, and simplify these narratives in ways that actually come back to, around to, to bite us in the ass. Uh, so let's get to that part of of, of, of the the story. We've talked about the spike in crime. We've talked about what drove it. These um, actually, you know, I don't know if we have. Let's talk a little bit more about that. Um, one what my, drove the punitive response? What drove the punitive response? Let's talk about the the economic transformations. This is a this is a part. I mean, God, if I if I could if I could turn back time, if I could find a way, a donner, you know what I would do? <laughs> what was that? What, uh, what was that? If, if, other than singing "Share" and into my beer and crying <laughs> into it, uh, I'd have Judith Stein on the show. Uh huh. 
the late historian Judith Stein, for the listener out there, I believe she was at CUNY prior to her passing. Uh, untimely death due to cancer, died too young, but still pretty advanced in her career. Up there with the, you know, generationally in terms of, with, with the likes of, say, Adolf Reed and such, wrote extensively on these economic transformations and, and how they produced certain seemingly racial outcomes that have far more complex causal structures. You seem to be telling a very similar story. Sorry if I lost I lost the, the listener out there, but I'm so utterly fascinated with these kind of alternative historical narratives that are going yeah. to be so important if we're going to justify a, a social democratic and democratic socialist policy turn and future. Um, so what's the story that you and John Clegg tell in this piece? So sorry, just to be clear, do you mean the story – the story uh, of the rise in the story of the economic transformations that led to the rise in crime or the story of the state's response to those economic transformations and the rise in crime? Let's do both uh, because we talked a little bit about the migration, but I don't want to take it for granted that that sort of solves that sort of answers addresses the question sufficiently, you know, in terms of why, why was it the case that you get these um, racial outcomes from these political economic transformations uh, because on, on the back end, it certainly looks like black Americans were left out of this prosperity. Right, right. And, right. It, and it would be very easy to, to attribute that to racism. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Now I see what you're asking. Yeah, so how do we so, add some complexity to that? Story? Yeah. So the way that the way that um, the way that I think about this and this is still, to be honest, something that I'm trying to put more flesh on. So I'd love to hear what you think as well. But uh, the, the way that I think about this and the kind of argument that we develop in the essay is that to understand the distinctiveness of America's political economy come the 1960s and the 1970s, one of the, specifically what I mean is the rise in crime, the rise in violence to such unprecedented um, degrees historically cross-nationally. I think one has to go all the way back to the first wave of industrialization in the United States, or, or maybe it's called the second wave. I always get confused. But basically the rise of jobs for low-skilled people in the 1880s, 1890s, 1900s, 1910s, right? That wave of industrialization that happens. One thing that one has to, one thing that we have to understand about the United States as compared to other European countries is that in some ways it's distinguished by the fact that those jobs do not go to America's peasantry, but to the impoverished peasantry of other countries. And this is the massive wave of immigration that happens in the U.S. in the late 19th century, early 20th century. African-Americans are concentrated in the South, concentrated in agriculture, and that wave of industrialization basically bypasses them entirely, right? They're stuck in the plantation economy as it's on its last legs, but it's still around in the late 19th century to the early 20th century. It's so hard these, for us to imagine that those people couldn't just hop a Greyhound bus and go get a job in, in New York City. <laughs> but that exactly. wasn't the world that existed in the late 19th century. I think it's really important to contextualize that. Exactly. Exactly. Absolutely. And so when the plantation economy starts to collapse, when it starts to erode, and that happens in various through various kinds of technological changes, and also um, there are certain shocks, like the boil weevil shock and such like that, stuff like this. As the plantation economy starts to collapse, what happens is that African-Americans do start to move to cities, both South and North. They move to cities, but these are cities that are already now dominated by white 
ethnics who have taken the jobs such as they were. And as a consequence, you start to see this stratified labor market and stratified residential environment that structures, in our view, so much of working class formation and working class rivalry in the United States. And in some ways, this is sort of the story that I would want to tell about the underdevelopment of the capacities of the American working class, this distinctive nature of American working class formation, where America doesn't industrialize with its own peasantry. And as a consequence, once its own peasantry arrives in cities looking for jobs, there are these rivalries with incumbents that really imperil working class solidarity. I mean, one of the one of the best essays on one of the most powerful essays that I've read on this subject is um, an essay which I'm now scandalously struggling to remember the title of, but is in Du Bois's volume Darkwater. There's an essay about St. Louis, which chronicles kind of exactly this dynamic in the city of St. Louis, where working class white ethnics are kind of hanging on to their jobs and to their residential environments at the expense of black immigrants arriving from the plantation economy. And that context of pronounced, that context is what produces this kind of pronounced racism and inter, uh, black-white tension and violence that complete, that makes it extremely difficult for the American labor movement to garner any kind of significant strength. And significantly, this is sort of relates to part of the argument that I think we'll come to. It's this period, 1890 to 1930, where the European country, European countries, the European welfare state starts to develop in very significant ways. And social spending in the US does not keep up. Social spending in the United States does not keep up to European levels in 1890, 1890, uh, 1890 to 1930. That's when you start to see the gap emerge. And we would attribute it to the relative underdevelopment of the American working class, which I think has its origins in this this fact of um, American working class formation, these facts of American working class formation. Totally. So let's let's get to we're talking about what didn't happen and maybe as a comparative, you know, as a comparative study with maybe some of the Western European countries in terms of the development of the working class at the end of the 19th century going into the 20th that set them up for these kind of social democratic policies. Now, we didn't get those social democratic policies in quite the same way. We got the New Deal. It was heavily racialized given the fact that there, you know, as we everybody now knows, there were Dixiecrats in FDR's coalition as a necessity. Of course, that is not a necessity. Racism is not a necessary component of social democratic and universalist policies. I have debunked that in, on many occasions on this show. But um, but but yet, th- let's talk about that the state of the working class and, and the working population in the United States, particularly its racialized dimensions, and how that leads to the deficiencies that produced these crime spikes in the 1960s and 70s. Yeah, I think it's exactly as you implied, which is that the absence of a strong, united working class, which is, as we were saying, a consequence of the specific way, the exceptional character of American working class formation, explains the anemic growth of America's welfare state. And in many ways, I see what you just identified, which are the deficiencies of the New Deal, as a consequence of this very fact, right? Precisely the reason that the Dixiecrats were so important to that coalition was that there was no massive social democratic party, social democratic constituency to sway the Democrats any other way, right? This is what wow, I was love required. That. 
this I is what that. was required yeah. to make it politically feasible. So it should be seen that that the racial racialized character of the New Deal, I think, should be seen as a symptom of the racialized character of American working class formation, which goes back to the salience of the plantation economy, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so, as you were saying, you know, we have a graph in our um, in our piece which shows the extent of social spending in the United States over the course of the 20th century. And you can see that by 1930, it's half of what Europe is spending on social spending. And this persists through the 20th century, this gap. And it's really that gap coupled with these political economic transformations that we were describing that explains the rise in violence. And then also we want to argue it is how one has to make sense of the penal response by the state. And I can put some more flesh on that argument if you'd like. Yeah, yeah, please do. Please do. We we have plenty of time. We're really sinking our teeth into this political economic, the political economic dimensions of this piece, which I think, you know, uh, you know, you, you unfortunately, due to the nature of this uh, piece, you don't really get to dig into as much as you probably would have liked. So, um, yeah, let's let's def- let's go there. Um, yeah, this is the, I mean, this is really the, the book that John and I are hoping to write, which explain which is trying to explain, which is trying to explain in the end, sort of the argument that we make at the very end of the piece, which is. Leftists are not wrong to argue that there is some really profound connection between the facts of American slavery and the facts of American mass incarceration. But that connection is not because slavery established some sort of trans-historical imperative that America be a land of white supremacy. That connection is because slavery and the plantation economy that succeeded it really transformed or really affected the character of American industrialization, working class formation um, in ways that profoundly undermined the creation of a strong, united working class that could form a social democratic party. Um, and also in some other ways that, we'll, that, that we might get to. But that that really is a story that we want to tell, that there is a way in which American slavery is connected to American mass incarceration, but it's not this kind of idealist way that is commonly proposed. So let's come to the question that you asked, which is why does the state respond to the rise in violence? Why, why does the American state respond to the rise in violence and rise in crime with social rather than penal policy? To understand why this is the case, we have to observe some facts that we explain in the piece about social policy and how it compares to penal policy. You often hear people say things like, oh, it's actually penal policy is really expensive. It costs forty dollars to $50,000 to put a person in prison. It only costs $10,000 to send them to state university. Why are we spending more money on penal policy than we do on social policy? If social policy is cheaper, social policy is both more humane and cheaper, we should do that. But that actually, that comparison is a little, is, is, is very, very misleading. And the reason it's misleading is because per capita statistics are not what should be compared. It's not per capita spending that is relevant. It's total spending. And the reason per capita spending is a misleading index of total spending is because there are much, much, many, many more people pass through the are are touched by social policy than are touched by penal policy. And the reason for that is that it's actually only a small minority of poor people who end up committing crime. And so the numbers of people who end up being arrested, imprisoned, convicted actually are much, much smaller than the number of people who go to school or the number of people who receive social security or the number of people who even receive unemployment insurance, et cetera, et cetera. So as a consequence, the, the fighting the rise in violence or fighting a rise in violence and crime with penal policy is actually a remarkably inexpensive way of dealing with crime and 
violence. And it is states like the United States in which it is very, very difficult to redistribute from rich to poor that you're more likely to see penal policy, penal policy responses to the rise in violence and crime rather than social policy responses to a rise in violence and crime. And that's because social policy requires massive redistribution. It requires massive redistribution from rich to poor, uh, almost an order of magnitude more money than is spent on penal policy gets spent on social policy in most developed countries. And the United States was just not capable of that kind of redistribution for all of the reasons that we've already explained. And given that, given, sorry, given the underdevelopment of social democracy in the United States, it's penal policy that emerged as the solution. Right. And I, I would love to see that argument fleshed out in more detail. You, got, you guys got to write this book. You got to come back on and talk about it when you're done. Uh, so what, what that will be about three months, right? You can do it in three months. It's fine. Yeah, no problem. Look, the Chinese built the hospital in seven days. Okay? <laughs> you, can write, you can write a fucking book. Three, no, uh, we'll come, come back on a year and a half or some odd you know, time and we'll flesh this out a little bit more. Uh, but one thing that I would like to see you talk about is that, I mean, that, there's one way that like this, this view from 10,000 feet high, you know, you could you could look in this in almost a almost a conspiratorial way, which I know you're not. You're far more far more careful and nuanced thinker than that. But but maybe sort of warning our audience from taking from from having takeaways from this conversation that that could be sort of you know conspiratorial, such that well you know obviously we we turn to penal policy because it's cheaper, and the American ruling class doesn't want to pay for social policy. Now now that's that's a sort of broad abstract abstracted you know conclusion that would be yeah. justified. Yeah, but it's yeah. an abstraction and it's a conclusion and it covers over the agency. And you're a guy being a sociologist who cares a great – and this comes through in the piece here as well – who cares a great deal about agency and the complexities of agencies and capacities. So rather than sort of saying that there's this cabal of you know Mr. Burns-esque style you know, uh, <laughs> oligarchs or whatever deciding that, no, 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 you're right. They're looking at their balance sheet, right, at the end of some fiscal year with their accountants, you know. Uh, the accountants have like horns, you know, and they're like, all of the all of the horrific like stereotypes and, and like uh, tropes that come from like Harry Potter, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah, the, the woke J.K. Rowling, of course. Anyway, I digress. Uh, imagine Mr. Burns, you know, looking at his balance sheet and say, no, 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 no. S these social policies are far too expensive. And he pulls out his red, his gold plated red pen and strikes it through and says, we'll go with the penal policies instead. And they all sort of pull, they give a golf clap and they go back to their club and they they drink expensive uh, booze. That's clearly – that's too simple. That's too simple, right? Uh, so maybe just riff, riff for us a little bit about the complexities of agency that, that, that produced this kind of conclusion. Yeah, that, that's, that's really well put, that question. I, I, would, I would not counterpose this sort of abstract way in which I was talking, this, uh, talking about this to a view that would emphasize agency exactly because I do think constraints are actually very, very important. But you're absolutely right that the – that the history of this is much more complicated. And the way in which it's much more complicated that I think is relevant is that this is really a story about different levels of the American government. So the way to think about this is that in the 1960s and the 1970s, the American public, let's say the 1960s, actually, that's probably the, the part to, to think about most carefully. In the 1960s, the American public was starting to get extremely concerned about crime. And you saw this concern about crime filter in to the Lyndon Johnson administration in the 1960s, which saw the, in many ways, the rise in crime as a structural problem, as a failure of social policy, as a failure of the American city institutions, the American city, right? This is all very clear 
and some of the leading documents of that period, like the report of the Kerner Commission or the Katzenbach Commission's report, which is about crime specifically. The question that we have to ask, obviously, is that even though these liberals, these sort of left-ish liberals saw crime as a social problem and sought to fight it with social policy, they were not really able to. And the reason they were not able to is because their the fiscal space fiscal space in that government was massively constrained by things that were otherwise underway in the United States, like the war in Vietnam. Um, now, it is important to say also that this is not just a failure of the federal government in the 1960s, but it's a failure, as we were saying earlier, of the federal governments before it and federal governments after it to really launch an affirmative social policy assault on the root causes of crime. Now, the reason that I was saying earlier that like the levels of government issue is very important is because what happens when federal governments in the United States fail to fight the root causes of crime with social policy. And remember, it's really only the federal government that has the capacity to redistribute from rich people living in San Francisco to poor people living in Ferguson, Missouri, right? When the federal government fails to do that, when the federal government fails to um, massively uh, to attack the rise in crime at its root, what happens is that it falls to local and state officials who are elected, who feel the anxiety and panic of their constituents about the rise in crime and violence to do something about crime. And local and state officials are especially unable to launch social policy responses to the problem of violence and crime. And the reasons for that are, first, as I was suggesting earlier, rich people don't tend to live in the places that crime concentrates, right? Rich people live in suburbs where there isn't crime, or they live in parts of part. Uh, they live out in jurisdictions where there isn't crime. And so places that have high levels of crime are precisely those places that need expensive social policy that can't find the resources in their jurisdiction to fight the problems with expensive social policy. The other reason is that suppose they did, suppose rich people did live in these jurisdictions. There's a simple problem of being a state in a capitalist society, being a local state in a capitalist society, which is that people will jump across jurisdictions if you start to tax them too much. And that also makes it prohibitively difficult for local jurisdictions to fight crime with expensive taxation Burden, burden uh, taxation heavy approaches to the problem of violence. It's got like uh, sociologist Jamie Peck kind of owns this term now. Uh, what is it? Hyper competitive neoliberalism or something like that, talking about the aspects of local, state, and national jurisdictions and the way that they can compete in, in, in different firms and corporate entities can pit one against the other. We all have seen this very recently in Amazon, obviously. This isn't, yes, uh, exactly. this isn't now exactly. a surprise. Of course, Peck was a little prescient maybe 20, 30 years ago, but it, we're living it today, baby. So <laughs> we don't need you dusty academics to explain it to us in quite the same way, although it still obviously is important. But uh, yeah, and this is, you know, and this is a persistent feature of the American state over the course of this period. Um, over the period that we're discussing, the, the, local, the local officials, which remember, it's actually a really important part of this story that, that in the United States, local criminal justice officials feel the force of public panic because they're elected in ways that isn't true in other countries. You know, DAs are elected, judges are often elected, police officers sometimes have to answer to sheriffs who are elected, mayors have a lot of control over crime 
policy over the police they're elected. So there's a lot of way in which public panic filters into the criminal justice system. And these criminal justice officials and state and local governments basically have no capacity for the reasons that we were explaining to do anything other than penal policy. And so what we need, obviously, is social policy at the federal level. For reasons that we've ex explained, that was extremely difficult and an extremely anemic in the United States. And when those things aren't forthcoming, local officials respond in the way they did. And the sum total of all of these local officials in these 50 states and 3,000 odd counties responding to a panicking public in the way they did is mass incarceration. Mm -hmm. So let's let's get to the let's pull us up to the present. Um, one of the things that you know, that there's a there's a there's a growing movement around mass incarceration. I'm going to do it, Adonner. I'm sorry. I'm going to do it. I'm going to ask you to weigh in on the prison abolition debate. I'm here. I can do it. You're here for it. We're here for it. So I, you know, I've, I've done a couple of shows that have that have teased this. I've I've I did it one show that was an aborted show. I, I won't talk about it. Um, I actually recorded an entire episode on this about a year and a half ago. And ended up scrapping the whole thing because the debate was moving so quickly and, the, and myself and my guest at the time felt that it wasn't a really productive um, intervention at that moment. It's, it's, it's a difficult topic. The, the people who push for prison abolition are very passionate. And I think at the end of the day, we're all on the same side for sure. Uh, but we have analytic um, – there are serious analytic differences. Um, what is the import of your work on that, on that debate? In terms yeah. of what, what are you trying to accomplish in, in that debate? Because it has tremendous it has tremendous resonance or impacts on our political practice today and, and what kind of policies we demand. So here's how I would I, I would suggest we approach that debate. Let me say first what I think we should do in terms of reform, what our analysis suggests about reform. And then we can say a little bit about we can inch our way towards the question of yeah, abolition. I like that. Let's talk, let's so, talk so practical way, reform first. Yeah. So the, the way that I think um, we should think about criminal justice reform, the way, the way I think we should attack mass incarceration, which obviously, as I hope everyone understands, the reason that we wrote this piece is that because we think it's a complete, complete and utter barbaric fact about American society and, and something that should be a priority of socialists and liberals and everyone to fight against. Much of the contemporary reform discussion, criminal justice reform discussion, is about the things that need to be done inside the criminal justice system. And we completely agree that there are things that need to be done, right? Um, carceral state currently is extremely degrading and humane. Sentences are too long. The conditions under which people are confined completely inhumane. There are certain offenses that are prosecuted that uh, make no sense to prosecute, like, say, jumping the subway turnstile or panhandling on the subway or something, things like that. You know, there are lots of things that need to be done to the criminal justice system to make it much more humane. Completely agree. The problem here is that so much, if you buy our analysis, so much of what we so much of the problem of mass incarceration actually lies outside the criminal justice system and not inside the criminal justice system. Because what the criminal justice system is doing is responding in whatever way criminal justice officials can to this crisis of violence and crime and social disorder. What we need, of course, is a social policy response to those problems of 
crime and disorder, right? And the way that this manifests itself is that in the contemporary reform conversation, when we talk about reform to criminal justice, we mostly talk end up talking about reform to the way in which we deal with nonviolent offenses, reform to drug offenses. But actually, there are most of the people inside American prisons have committed serious offenses. And it's absolutely true that punitive response to those offenses is completely inhumane and unwarranted. But the state does need to respond to the crisis in their lives in some way. And that will require really bolstering our social policy response to these problems. So one of the purposes of this essay is to argue that in many ways, the most powerful things that we can do about mass incarceration in the United States are not actually about reform to the criminal justice system, but about reforming the welfare state and social policy. I think that we forget too often, and this is a, this is a, this is a strange thing. It's it's a, so weird. I think we as socialists, leftists, progressive, uh, right-thinking humanitarians, all too often forget that we live in a democracy, and that people have a right to respond to their social reality. People who live in dangerous communities have the right to be scared. They have the right to, you know, to, to demand that somebody fix this. We want to live in a, in a democratic, responsive, participatory society. And so I, too, all too often, I think that some of, some of the, the debates around here forget or they discount or they, um, you know, they, they claim to be on the side of the masses and yet they ignore the demands and the, and the pleas and the cries of the masses. Um, and that's where this is where this literature that I pointed to a little bit, uh, you know, obviously James Foreman, Michael Javin Fortner, and many many others have talked about this extensively. Um, it's a, it's a contentious debate out there. Yeah, right? absolutely. What I would say about that, which I think is is important to note here, is that when we say that the state needs to respond to these pleas and to this panic, one of the things that we should remember also is that there are encouraging signs to take from that pleas and the, from that from that kind of um, from the response that people had to crime as documented in Foreman, in uh, the Foreman book in particular, which is that, and we see this in public opinion polls that we look at, when people were responding to the rise in crime and violence, they responded both with a plea for penal policy. There's definitely, you know, some very sobering things that you see in American public opinion about what people think should be done in terms of policing and imprisonment. But there are also some things that are kind of heartening. And people arguing that, you know, the right way to deal with crime when they're given options in public opinion polls is to fight it with job programs and with better education systems and housing and whatever else. And in many ways, just as today in the United States, in many ways, then the task in public opinion is to seize on those parts of public opinion that can help us build towards the society that we want to see not to not to completely deny but but not to completely deny the other parts of public opinion um as well and and that really i think is the story here is is the story is a story of an american political system that channeled one part of what people were saying about the rise in crime and it channeled that part because of these enormous political and economic constraints on public officials over this period yeah, yeah, I love that. So, so we're not discounting the agency and the demands and the pleas and the cries of, of the so-called masses that we claim to you know fight for and represent, uh, but we're looking 
at a, a much more broader and complex social totality. Now, part yeah, of that, and, and in fact, you know, we might even indict this political system for channeling only what's worst in individuals. I mean, that's yeah. that's in one in one way is one in in one way our it sort of amplifies our indictment of the world in which we live. That what the state did was that it channeled everything punitive and horrible about what people thought and suppressed all of the other more humane ways in which people thought we should respond to crime and violence. Yeah, I think there's a growing a growing understanding of that and in, in just in the broader culture, the way that uh, the worst aspects of humanity are often brought out by by those who who don't really give a shit about us very much, do they? Uh, you know, this is a sort of mass sort of populist, uh, you know, democratic socialist uh, ethic that's emerging sense, in the yeah. culture. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's really promising. And I think we can tap into this. So let's, let's wind up here by talking about what you and your co-author uh, call looking forward in your final section here. Clearly, obviously the answer is, uh, you know, more social democracy working towards democratic socialism, the end, right? But it's, <laughs> the story's got to be, story's got to be more than that, right? Take it home for us. We are in, maybe contextualize our political moment for us. I want you to summarize all of the debates and the primaries and the caucuses. What's your, what's your view on Iowa? Uh, no, <laughs> we're not going to go in that deep, but yeah, contextualize the political moment as you see it right now. And in particularly how it's impacting not only this literature, but also you know, the activism and the social policy that's emerging from it, because as you well know, and I talk about I've talked about this with uh, Joanna uh, on my episode one in the anti-essentialism series, talking about how, you know, as good Marxists, good materialists, we understand all too well how social phenomenon and, and mass movements alter the social scientific and even the hard scientific um conceptions of the world. Right. I mean, that's that's at the that, that's at the root of historical materialism. So maybe kind of contextualize how we got here and where, where you see us going based on this kind of interaction between the sort of the material and the ideal as it's developed. Mm, that, those, that's a really great, profound question. But before I answer your great question, did you want me to say something about abolitionism? Because I'm very happy to. Oh, well. yes, we did. We missed it. Let's let's do <laughs> that. Let's, let's let's go there. And I, I mean, you could probably weave in the historical materialism with the with the abolition debate. I can try a, a little try. bit. Yeah. If, yeah. if hell, if you know, you, you got this. Money. I got a lot of faith in you. <laughs> yeah, let's let's address the abolition stuff first, and then we'll 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 give you a, a moment to kind of uh, give a stump speech, deliver the coup de gras at the end. <laughs> um, okay, so I mean, the the way that I think about abolitionism is that it depends a lot. Our attitude towards abolitionism depends a little bit about obviously what prison abolitionists mean when they say that we're for prison abolition. So sometimes what prison abolitionists seem to mean is that they, they do mean literal um, abolition. And I think the reason to be skeptical of that as a political goal is because there exists no capitalist society on earth in recent history that has ever literally abolished prisons and police. And there's really no chance that the United States will be the first. So it seems to me like a non-starter as a political demand. Um, the other thing that prison abolitionists seem to mean, though, sometimes when they talk about prison abolition is something like let's transform American prisons into Swedish prisons. Let's transform them into, let's say, at least Swedish prisons at their best, which are more humane conditions of confinement, a heavy, heavy dose, a priority on social policy interventions rather than penal interventions, a focus on rehabilitation rather than simple 
punishment, right? All of these sorts of things, meaning kind of root cause reform to criminal justice policy. And as you were saying, a massive expansion of social democracy. Now, I kind of have no truck with that reform agenda. I think that is a very, very promising reform agenda. In that case, my reservations about calling oneself a prison abolitionist are not descriptive in terms of what the reform agenda implies, but more political in the sense that I think that calling oneself a prison abolitionist, if you don't really mean literal abolition, is politically extremely confusing and alienating to ordinary people who aren't kind of on the woke left, right? And that's not to say, again, I don't disagree. I, I almost have no agreement, no disagreements with that kind of reform agenda that those kinds of prison abolitionists put out. But I think politically, it's not at all a good use of our energies. And it's not strategic at all to call oneself a prison abolitionist, if that's all. Yeah. I mean. yeah. Let, let's turn down the heat on this specific debate by, by sort of making a, an allegorical or comparative kind of um, comment here. I was listening to Navarra Radio, our friends over there overseas, across the pond at Navarra Radio. They had um, Rebecca Long Bailey on. Um, she is obviously now a, um, a, a serious candidate, uh, not not the front runner, but a candidate for the leader of the Labor Party, the British Labor Party. And her critique of the Labor Manifesto leading up to this election was very, very similar. She said, for example, what is the four-hour work week doing on our manifesto? Right. It's not as though we don't want a four-hour work week and we're going to do everything we can in our power to fight for a four-hour work week right. as, a, as a core socialist principle. But what is it doing on our fucking manifesto? It never should have been there because that, that gives you know, the Daily Mail and all the rest of them. Uh, you know, uh, it's like open season on that policy suggesting that, oh, you're going to suggest the NHS go to a four-hour work you – know, four, four day – sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm mixing in the, the – <laughs> I'm mixing in the five-hour work week uh, – uh, with Four hour the, work week is just a few steps ahead. I, I should write that book. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> you just exploit more virtual assistants in India and, and elsewhere. Anyway, um, yeah, uh, the, the five five four, four day, day work week. Jesus, uh, four day work week is is just is, is it's just open season for the far right and, and even the center left to sort of paper us as these pie in the sky, not serious sort of types of people. And so it seems to me that you're suggesting that prison abolition functions in a similar sort of way. Uh, yeah, the, yeah, exactly. I think, I think the way that I would think about it is, is similar to a discussion that we had when I was on the show for the first time in the piece that Connor and I wrote in Jacobin, which was to argue that the real task of leftists today in the kind of world in which we live is to figure out a way of being kind of productively one step ahead of public opinion, but not 10 steps ahead of public opinion. And that is both because of, as you're saying, what the far right would do with us being 10 steps ahead of public opinion, but also with what is required, and maybe more importantly, what is required to convince people who aren't yet where we are um, to join our side, right? And I think abolitionism is, is likely to have the effect of, of diminishing our abilities to do that rather than increasing our abilities to do that. I think instead we should emphasize things like the massive expansion of social policy and the making more humane of penal policy. But we should talk about those things directly rather than use this confusing language of abolitionism. 
So I think that was a pretty that, that was a nice way to sort of gloss the debate, but also bring in some of the, the, the discussions, the topics that we've been uh, considering over the past hour. Let's bring it home. Um, looking forward, what what needs to happen? We've already talked about how we shouldn't uh, position ourselves. We shouldn't position ourselves 10, 20 steps ahead of of, of consciousness, the political um, you know the political status quo, the political horizon, if you will. Um, it's funny how people use this word horizon, isn't it? You know, you use, uh, anyway, I digress. Um, I, you know, I think, I think the horizon is sort of, is sort of a guiding principle. You know, you're sort of looking towards the horizon as guiding principle. If, if it's so far off that you can't even imagine it or see it, is that really a horizon? Right. Or is that right. out there somewhere in, on, on Venus? Uh, you know what I mean? If, if, if yeah, you don't, exactly. if, you, if, if I can't walk, tw- if I don't know how to go- walk towards it, uh, or what that what that would even what kind of world we would be living in wherein I could even uh, attempt that um, that that's not much of a guidepost at all is it you know it's something that we need to keep you know, we need to hold it up as an aspiration and think seriously about you know strategic terms of long game the the medium term game and the short game and the rest of it but it's not much of a horizon if we can't if we don't even know how to to get there and we can't articulate it to to people in a way that makes sense. Um, we really should be about sense making in this era. If the Bernie wave has taught us anything, we need to, we need to, we need to talk in ways that make sense to people. Train our, I train our eyes on horizons that other people can see. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I love that. Very concise. I'm going to get that tattooed on my forehead. So, uh, <laughs> looking forward, you and your co-author give us a couple of principles and a couple of ideas, but I'm going to give you a chance here to really expand on those. What, what do we need to look forward to in terms of producing, uh, real criminal justice, real reforms to our, our horrific system of mass incarceration. Yeah, well, I think if we had this interview, if we had had this discussion, you know, 10 years ago, this part of the conversation would be much more depressing in some ways, because, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. because not only was there not this sort of creeping consensus or creeping view that there are things that we need to do inside the criminal justice system that are important to make it more humane, but much more depressingly, I think there was never this conversation about revitalizing social policy and building the American welfare state that is now transpiring in American politics. Um, the reason that I think we should be especially excited because is because one of the things that I think this whole analysis suggests about mass incarceration is that so solving the problem of mass incarceration is not, as many academics would like to believe, a kind of technical problem about re-engineering policy to be a little more X or a little more Y. That fundamentally is not the issue. Fundamentally, what is the issue here is that the United States is a country that does not redistribute from rich to poor in any kind of humane way to any sort of humane extent. And as a consequence of that underdeveloped anemic welfare state that we have, we have problems such as mass incarceration. So it's not at all a technical problem, but a political problem. It's a political problem that will require confronting the power of the wealthy and the rich over our politics. And that is why today I'm much more optimistic than I would have been 10 years ago, which is that we see that kind of movement brewing. We see it brewing in obviously the Sanders presidency, but I think more importantly, really, we see it brewing in all of the movements 
that the Sanders campaign has given an impetus to. And that's why, in some ways, I'm much more hopeful than I ever have been, which is not the same thing as saying that I'm hopeful exactly, but much, much more hopeful than I ever have been about the possibility that we might actually approach this as a political problem rather than as what I see all the time, which is the idea that mass incarceration is a technical issue. It's not. It's a political problem, and we need to advance the political tools that you and I have been discussing, the, the sort of ability to confront the power of the wealthy if we're going to make inroads against it. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's an increasing inertia in the, in the political scene and the political scene, also in just in the culture, in the broader culture. Which, you know, it, you don't have to be a culturalist to see how, you know, material struggle and whatever sort of gets solidified into mass culture, pop culture and the rest of it. And it could be a really powerful source of strength. Um, at the same time, it's it's important that we're not raising up our 18, 19 year old passionate activists out there uh, with these absurdist and incomplete narratives um, because some people like you and I. When faced with uh, an unsatisfactory narrative, we'll, we'll say, you know what? This doesn't sound quite right. There's got to be something else here. Maybe we're, maybe we're framing this incorrectly. And we'll, we'll go into the dusty books and we'll, we'll read the right people and go into the data as you and your co-author did and, and, and produce a different story, a much more, um, a much more you know, rational, reasoned, defensible story. But the vast, vast, vast majority of people, when when given narratives and you know shoddy evidence, will just reject it altogether, and and they'll go even further and suggest and say that you know what these leftists, they're they're full of shit. I'm out. And 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 you know that's that's what a lot of people will do. So we should be very careful and cautious about our you know this wave. It can it can uh, things will ebb and flow and. This wave can crash as fast as it, it has grown, much faster than it has grown if we don't get our our analysis straight. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think we're making a tremendous amount of progress in that, in that, on that front. Well, if you – OK, Bernie Sanders is elected president. He calls you up. He says, uh, uh, Adana, do you mind if I call you Adana? OK, Adana. Uh, I'd love for you to be my new czar of uh, prison policy. You're going to come to the White House. Uh, you're going to hang out and uh, we're going to create some – we're going to craft uh, – that, that, that's all the Bernie I got. Uh, <laughs> not bad. It's getting better. I've, I've been coached by some really good people out there. Uh, what would you do? What are some of the policies you put on the table day one in order to try to counteract this mass incarceration crisis from a more holistic perspective? You know, I actually think that Marie Gottschalk once said this when she was interviewed about mass incarceration, but she said – you, someone asked her a very, I think it was actually Connor maybe asked her a very similar question. Um, and she said the first thing that she would do was to institute universal health care. And to be honest, there probably isn't any social policy that is on the horizon right now that would do more to transform American punishment than health care. It's so much of the reason in the end that a lot of people found them, find themselves kind of trapped in the carceral System. It's a lot of the reason for the inadequacy and the, the inhumanity of the conditions of their confinement. It's it's it, we could do much worse than pass Medicare for all the day after Bernie comes into office. Um, 
then there there are a few things other than that i think that could have as much impact but otherwise more generally you know i would say the kind of he's gonna say yeah he's gonna say listen 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 adonna adonna i've got sean king up my ass (laughs) he's demanding specific policies on criminal justice give me something what do you give him yeah it's a it's a great question i think (laughs) uh i i think I would say there are many different things that we could do in terms of sentencing, right? So sentencing should be, there There should be far shorter sentences than the sentences to which people are um, sentenced. The, one of the other big issues here is that public defenders are massively underfunded in the United States, which gives prosecutors a lot of power. So I would say, Bernie, you got a triple, quadruple funding for public defenders. Um, and other things that people should be confined in much more humane conditions, which means that we should have all sorts of programs that prisons have been shutting down for a long time, right? In terms of vocational education, technical education, we should have, um, and this is, this becomes a little bit more tricky to think about, but we should probably be sending more money on prisons, not less in the sense that Mm. people should be, people shouldn't be confined to six cells per, per, six people per cell or whatever, um, the ratio is in some prisons even more horrific. Remember those pictures from California um, when the California Supreme Court ruled about it? I mean, we should be in, incarcerating people in much more humane conditions than they're incarcerated. There are things within criminal justice policy as well that I think that a, um, a Bernie could do. I mean, the, the, now again, I, like obviously we're thinking about this extremely optimistically <laughs> in, in one way because yeah. – there are some th- there are some ways in which the president is limited in what the president can do about criminal justice policy because it's a matter for state and localities. Um, he can do a lot of things inside the federal system or his Department of Justice can at least. But it's going to require but, money, which obviously requires Congress. The way that you know our constitution. Oh, totally, too. That's the big thing too. Yeah, that that absolutely. But yeah. but but one of the reasons that I was emphasizing social policy in this sort of fantasy fantasy um, that you were sketching is that in many ways. The federal government, the the most powerful thing that the federal government can do is attack the many problems that we see via social policy. And because that is something that would affect prisoners in state and local prisons as well. It would affect it would transform the character of criminal justice at the state and local level, which is really where reform needs to reach um, to be effective, because that's where most prisoners are. Um, And, you know, in response to the sort of Sean King story that you were suggesting, I think. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> one reason that this is one reason that this is really important is because this is also what is so uh, this is this is also the kind of thing that's so necessary if we're to combat racial disparities in, in incarceration. There are obviously there are lots of there's lots of evidence that um, everyone from prosecutors to police to to judges to prosecutors uh, operate in racially biased ways there's no doubt about that yeah. but the lion's share of racial disparity is not explained by racial bias inside the criminal justice system but racial inequality outside it so if we want to be serious about transforming racial disparities about combating racial disparities in incarceration we need to be serious about attacking racial inequality outside the criminal justice system and that also is a matter for social policy not penal policy Right on, right on. We've got a lot of work to do, but I think your your um, your academic efforts are helping us quite a bit here. Um, you know, it's not often it's not often the case that academics academics can say that, but uh, I really do mean that. And it's really excellent. Also, just a quick pitch for Catalyst Journal for those of you who aren't subscribed or don't support Catalyst. 
you know, this is this is uh, this is the kind of piece that I would like to imagine. I don't have to imagine because Vivek has told us on air live on this very show. This is exactly the kind of piece that uh, that they set out to publish when they when they started that project. Um, so people should be supporting Catalyst. I will link to this article in the show notes. I'm not sure if it's available for free. It may be paywalled right now, but uh, oh, it is. Thanks. That's really kind of you to say that about um, uh, about Catalyst. People should definitely subscribe. Yeah. If they don't want to subscribe right now, it is out, okay. out uh, under the paywall. It's not okay. under the paywall right now. Yeah. I'll, I'll typically uh, I'll typically shoot an email and, and see if I can get something unpaywalled if I have it on on the show. And they're almost well, they've always been uh, amenable to that request. So all the more reason to support Catalyst and subscribe if you're not. Um, again, Adana Usmani uh, is the co-author with John Clegg of this piece, Economic Origins of Mass Incarceration. Thanks for coming back on DPS. Thanks for. Uh, you know, thanks for humoring me with my Bernie impression and uh, <laughs> look forward to having you back on the show in approximately three months after you and John write this uh, incredibly long and detailed book. <laughs> thanks, Adam. Thanks a lot. And that concludes today's episode of Dead Pundit Society. I hope that you all enjoyed this as much as I did. This week's B-Side is going to feature the great Megan Day. We're going to be talking about the New Hampshire primaries and Bernie's likely victory there. By the time that episode is recorded, all of that will be clear and we'll be able to assess the way forward for Bernie Sanders. Talk about the Nevada caucus, the upcoming South Carolina primary and Super Tuesday. But if you're not a patron of Dead Pundit Society, you are going to miss out, sadly. So don't miss out. Head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and smash that subscribe button in order to receive access to our weekly B-sides and much, much more. I know there are a lot of political outfits and operations out there asking for your hard-earned dollars. I hope that all of you are donating to the Bernie Sanders campaign as you are able. I am contributing my paltry, paltry sums to that campaign as I am able. Uh, But there are also others, more medium and long-term political projects out there. And I think the DPS is one of those for sure. There are going to be a lot of people coming around to progressive and left-wing and even explicitly socialist politics over the coming months. And it is important indeed crucial that we have educational outlets and other types of informational media outlets in order to bring those people into the fold and to educate them and to make them very serious, savvy, and sophisticated operators on the political scene over the coming decades. And no doubt DPS has a serious role to play there. So if you have any disposable income at all and you'd like to contribute to that project, head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and you know what to do. All right, patrons, we'll see you very soon for the B-Side, talking about New Hampshire and beyond. And to the rest of you, see you next week.